Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. And if you're using the church Bible, it's page 1098. Page 1098. This entire chapter, and then some verses at the end of chapter 7, where uh, one of the men mentioned in the opening section, uh, Stephen, uh, where uh, he is then uh, put to death because of his faith in Christ. Page 1098, Acts chapter 6. In those days when the number of disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews, or among them, complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified. This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And then chapter 7 is um, Stephen's um, explanation of his teaching, uh, Stephen's defense of his teaching, 
And the basic argument uh, that Stephen puts forward is that God has never been confined to a building. Go back to Abraham. Come through to Joseph and Moses and right the way through. And God has never been confined to a building. And you're wrong to confine him to the temple. Uh, and uh, that he is now present uh, in Christ the temple. Christ is the temple where we meet God and through whom we worship God. And so then um, he accuses, the, he, he, he applies, he's not accusing, he's applying his message uh, at the end uh, from verse um, 51 on. Uh, and he shows the people that they have continually missed this point uh, and missed how God has been dealing with them uh, at different times. And then verse 54. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Amen. We have reached uh, Sermon 3 in our short series uh, on the scriptural teaching on the office and work of deacon. In our first sermon, uh, we noted that all believers are set apart uh, to serve and we thought of how that should work out practically in our lives. And it is from that general command to all believers to serve that then we have this office of deacon, which is established in the church then for the church as a body uh, to serve um, uh, need that exists within its bounds and beyond its bounds. Last time in Sermon 2, we examined the evidence uh, in the New Testament for a separate, distinct office to be known as the deacon. And now this morning we turn to Acts chapter 6 and we're wanting to look this morning at the historical origins or the historical beginnings of the office of deacon. In other words, what circumstances led to the establishment of this office in the New Testament church? And what circumstances um, require its continuation in the church uh, today and until Christ comes again. Uh, I'm sorry that the headings are a bit more cumbersome 
this morning. Uh, if you want um, um, snappy headings, then just think of the problem, the principle, the proposal, uh, and the persons. Uh, but um, all of these tie in uh, to the beginning of this office. First of all, we want to think then about the problem that necessitates the office of deacon or calls for the office of deacon uh, and the work of deacon in the church in Jerusalem. Now anything that grows has roots, flowers, um, trees, weeds, all have roots. And roots lie underneath the surface. And you don't usually see them. In fact, if you see the roots, uh, it's a sign that you probably need to be giving some attention to the flowers or the trees uh, because uh, they're in danger uh, of not doing very well. Um, but there are times when we go to move a plant or whatever and it's then that we dig down and we see the roots. Well, this morning we're digging down into Scripture to see the roots of that office that we uh, noted last week uh, was present in the church in Philippi, Philippians chapter 1 verse 1, and that was also present in the church in Ephesus, 1 Timothy chapter 3. And we saw how those settings were very different settings um, in terms of where the church was located uh, and working. And here now, in Acts chapter 6, we have the roots. Here's where it all began. And um, the office and work of deacon has its roots in the scenario that presents itself in Acts chapter 6, verse 1. In those days, when the number of the disciples was increasing, the Grecian Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked. The church is growing um, uh, rapidly here, as you know from the early chapters in Acts. Uh, the church is expanding, not just numerically, but she's also expanding ethnically. She's moving out beyond the Jews and she's reaching out to those who are of a Greek background and a Gentile background uh, as well. Uh, and uh, so it is in that context of a growing church and a church that is diverse in her makeup uh, that this problem presents itself. And the church is seeking to care for the widows within her midst. In that society, widows were usually properly less and they were also poor. Uh, and the church from the earliest times in the Old Testament um, had a sense of responsibility placed upon her by God to care for the poor. You cannot read the Old Testament scriptures without seeing how the church was to care for the poor within her midst. The destitute, um, the widow, and the orphan, and the stranger um, in particular. And then to do good to all men, as she had indeed opportunity. 
in this church in Jerusalem that has now grown out of the church in the Old Testament, she rightly understands her responsibility to care for the widows in her midst. And as she does that, the church powerfully reflects Christ, her Saviour, Christ, her Head. Remember, Jesus continually cared for the weak and the needy. There was a huge strand to his ministry, which was a ministry of benevolence. Not just healing disease, but here he has a crowd that have come to listen to him, uh, and they've been with him a long time, and he refuses to send them home without providing them with food, because he knows that they're hungry. He's going another day into a city, and he sees a funeral procession coming out, and it's a widow who's burying her son. And again, the heart of Christ goes out to this widow, because he is the true servant, and he has come down from heaven, and he reflects fully and perfectly the heart of God in human flesh. And so the church is reflecting Christ in his earthly ministry. She's not just reflecting what was happening in the Old Testament, what God had said then, but she's reflecting the earthly life of Christ and caring for the needy in her midst. And that is still a vital um, characteristic of the person who is saved today. You and I who profess Christ, we saw in Roping Sam that holiness becomes us, the church, we're to become like Christ. And so that means that you and I who profess Christ, we will have the heart of Christ for the needy within our families, within our church, within our community, within our place of work, wherever we come across need. We cannot simply close our hearts, cross over the other side of the road, and pass by and go on about our business. Otherwise, we're denying our Saviour. And we're contradicting what he looks for in Christians and in his church. And so, there is a problem that arises as the apostles undertake this ministry in the church in Jerusalem. They have to do so alongside the ministry of prayer and the word. But these are men with real limits on their time, on their energy, on their resources. And the reality is, they are beginning not to cope. And some members, especially those from a Greek Gentile background, um, are beginning to complain. And they are saying, the Jewish widows are getting the lion's share of the apostles' care. And of course, these uh, believers that have come from these two different backgrounds, they have been told uh, in the teaching of the apostles, there is neither Jew nor Greek, 
There is neither male nor female. There is neither Scythian nor barbarian. We're all one in Christ. And we're all treated equally in Christ and in the church of Christ. But there is a very real sense for some of these people that that is not transferring itself into practice. We're told that a murmuring arises. That's a very significant word in the Greek because in the Old Testament translation in Greek it's used in Exodus 16 verse 7 to speak of the murmuring of the Israelites the people against Moses their leader. And so there's a sense in which the murmuring about bread becomes a murmuring against their leaders, the apostles. And that is understandable in that the apostles, Acts 4, are receiving the money for this ministry and the apostles to date are heading up this ministry. So there's the problem. And the situation is very volatile. It is dangerous. It has the potential to split the church into two camps. It has the potential to, to destroy that teaching that has been going out there that we are one in Christ. It has the potential to awaken again the old rivalries between Greek and Hebrew, uh, between Jew and and Gentile. These old rivalries that the gospel and that Christ has put to rest. And the apostles being accused of neglect towards some believers and members. That is a serious charge. And so the problem that arises. But then let's notice secondly the principle. Because as the apostles begin to grapple with this situation, there's a principle that emerges, well maybe it doesn't emerge, it was there clearly in their thinking, but it's expressed. There's a principle that they express. And this principle then underpins the office of deacon then and the office of deacon today. Now notice, when this problem comes to the attention of the apostles they don't dismiss it. They don't dismiss it out of hand. They don't ignore it. They don't bury their heads hoping and praying uh, and believing that it will go away. They don't take sides actually on this whole problem either. Instead they take action. They take action. No doubt asking first of all, is it possible that this could happen? And then asking, is it true that this is happening? What is the evidence that this is happening? And so that's how they proceed with this situation. And that again is something important to say to us as Christians and churches about issues and problems that arise in our lives. 
Problems can arise in a marriage. Problems can arise in a family between children and parents. Problems do arise in the church. Problems arise in the workplace. And there's a principle here that we who are Christians, we need to hold on to. Problems are to be addressed. They're not to be ignored. They're not to be dismissed out of hand. As a load of um, uh, baloney. Nor are we to take sides. We're to take action. We may have to sit down with our wife or our husband. And say we've got to talk together. We may have to sit down as friends with our children. And say we need to talk with each other. What is it that lies behind your behaviour? And your attitude in these days. And there may be times when we've got to go and talk to another church member. Because we sense there is a problem between us and them. And in the workplace as well. Problems don't go away. If they're there, they don't go away by ignoring them or dismissing them or taking sides on them. Now, as the apostles consider this whole situation, they obviously conclude that there are grounds for the complaint. And the apostles honestly acknowledge the limits of their own ministry. They rightly recognize that if they give themselves more to the benevolent ministry as it seems needs to happen, then there's a real danger for them and for the church that social ministry and benevolence is going to take over and preaching or prayer and preaching are going to go neglected. And if that happens, then the advance of the gospel will suffer. Those who are new disciples, they will not be built up in their faith. Those um, who um, are mature disciples, they're not going to be fed, they're not going to be growing, they're not going to be strengthened. The church is not going to be pastored. New people are not going to be reached. The apostles are not going to be out there in the community making known the gospel as they have been doing in the opening chapters with such blessing and fruitfulness. And so at a congregational meeting, and this is the first church meeting that we read of in scripture, and one of the few, these men, the apostles, whom Christ has set over the church, they set out a principle that undergirds the office of deacon then and today. Verse 2. It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word in order to wait on tables, in order to serve tables. And that's a phrase that was used for providing food. Also, interestingly, it was a phrase that was used with regard to and handling money. You served tables when you were handling money. It was the equivalent of our idea of the bank and treasurership 
So it's an interesting word that's used here, given that today, uh, and also in this day, these men were going to handle money, as well as handle food. And so, uh, this is the principle that they established. Now, the apostles are not suggesting here, well, actually, this work is beneath us. We have more important things to do. Let anybody do that. Uh, it's, it's beneath us. That's not what they're saying. Um, nor are they suggesting that the material and the welfare ministry of the church uh, are unimportant or that they should go neglect it. They are simply saying this is not our calling of God. This is not our calling of God. This is not what Christ poured three and a half years of his life and ministry into us for. Yes, he as the Son of God was able to combine both together in his person, the caring ministry and the preaching ministry. But now these men are saying there's got to be a separation that takes place. Both are important, but they've got to be done by different individuals. And so the apostles established the principle that they, as the spiritual leaders, they, as the representatives and the apostles of Christ, must give themselves ongoingly to prayer and the ministry of the Word. That's the principle. And today this principle established in Acts 6 underpins the office of deacon. The church must have a benevolent ministry to those who are in need in her midst and to those that she comes into contact with in the community and to uh, disasters and crises that happen in the wider society. It is through that that we often open up opportunities for the gospel. Peter and John earlier were going to the temple. There's a man lying at the gates of the temple. He's a cripple. And they heal the man. And as you read through that account in Acts chapter 4 and 5, it opened up an opportunity for the gospel for them. And uh, Peter and John later said, if we be judged this day for a good deed done, a caring deed done, let it be known to you that it's done in the name of Christ. So the church is to have this caring ministry. But the church is not to do that at the expense of the ministry of prayer and the word. That happens in some churches today. And you go into the church and you will find a very highly organized, caring, benevolent social ministry. But you will not find the gospel. You will not find men giving themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. It's as if people only have material or bodily needs. But Christ established and the apostles here uphold it, that people have both bodily needs, often within the church, and they certainly have 
spiritual need. And both need to be met. And since the time of the apostles, elders have responsibility for the spiritual life of the church. For prayer. For the ministry of the word. To the new convert. To the mature believer. The pastoral care. The overall leadership of the church. And then the welfare affairs of the congregation. And the material affairs of the congregation. They are important too. And they are to be given to a body of men to take responsibility for. That's the principle. And so then we have the third place, the proposal. The proposal. What should happen then? How should the church proceed? Notice the apostles um, do not uh, say that uh, this ministry is to go to the wall. They don't put the onus on the widows that are raising the issue. And they don't say, well now, you ought to go and make sure that you get cared for. That you get your daily bread. They don't downgrade the social and benevolent and material ministry. No, uh, they, the caring ministry of the congregation isn't to suffer, it isn't to be downgraded. The widows aren't to be told that it's their responsibility. The apostles ensure that the benevolent ministry is given equal priority and place by their proposal of verse 3. Therefore, brethren, choose seven men from among you. Choose seven men from among you. And then we will turn this responsibility over to them. So there's going to be a separate body of men. Seven men. And the number seven is the idea of completion and perfection. The right number, as it were, uh, for the situation. And these men will function under the oversight of the, of the apostles. That's an important principle for us to note as we pass here. They're under the oversight of the apostles. The diaconate or the deacon is the lesser office in scripture. And the deacon and the diaconate always must work in cooperation with the eldership. And in submission to the eldership. And so here's the proposal there. And notice how it addresses all the issues. The widows are not going to be neglected. There's not going to be division in the church. It's going to be healed and avoided. The apostles are not going to be diverted from their work. And so it, it meets all the issues that are coming to the surface at this time. And that's very important when we're dealing with any problem, whether it's in our marriage, whether it's with our children, whether it's in the church. If we don't understand the problem fully, if we don't get a clear grasp of what the principles are in a situation, then our proposal to deal with the problem will be less than effective and less than satisfying. 
And so it's, it's important when we are resolving issues that we, we um, resolve all aspects as happens here. I notice responsibility for this ministry will be delegated by the apostles to them. And that means the financial resources for this ministry that are now being held by the apostles, they are now going to be placed in the hands of the seven. You cannot give people responsibility for something if you do not give them the resources with which to do the task for which you are making them responsible. It's not the outcry that we hear again and again from our health service and our schools. We have a job to do. We've been given responsibility for health. We've been given responsibility for education. But we're not being given the resources with which to do it. And so we have this proposal there. And look at what we're told in verse 5. This proposal pleased the whole group. Pleased the whole group. What a wonderful thing it is when there are problems and you sit down and talk about them. Whether they're in the family or in the workplace or in the church or in the community, you sit down and you talk and you tease out the principles and then you find a proposal and you, it's, it's made and there's a response of acceptance. What a blessing that is. The congregation unanimously and wholeheartedly accepts the recommendation of the apostles. Let's notice then, fourthly and finally this morning, the persons. The persons. The persons that occupy this. Look at, go back again to verse 3. Brothers, choose seven men. And then we read verse 5. They chose. And the names are listed. I'm not going to comment this morning on the individual men. But there is uh, um, a balance here. Uh, across this congregation. Uh, there are men here. Stephen is from a Greek background. His name means crown. And then we read, for example, at the end of the list uh, of Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. So here's somebody who's had a Greek background and who has come into the Jewish faith and is now a Jewish Christian. Or is now a Greek Christian, sorry. And so that's the very uh, group that felt they were not being catered for. So there's great wisdom here in how the church chooses uh, the men. But I don't want to focus on on that part this morning. I want us to note the general principles, the character, if you want to put it like that. But to emphasize, first of all, the church, verse 5, is to choose. Sorry, verse 3. And verse 5, the church chose. Ministers and elders and deacons are not to be imposed on the church from any quarter. They're not to be imposed by the present leadership. It can't be that the present leadership in a church chooses 
the men who will fulfill office uh, and um, uh, and ordain those men. There's got to be the church, the congregation has got to be involved. The code of our church does allow um, session always to nominate men for the eldership. It also allows session to nominate men for deacon. But always there's also the opportunity for the church to nominate alongside. And ultimately it is the church that votes and decides who its minister is going to be. Who its elders are going to be. And who its deacons are going to be. They're not imposed. And they cannot. It's wrong when leaders are imposed upon a church by one individual or by a group of individuals. Now what kind of member is eligible? What kind of member should the church be thinking of as she comes to choose? Well first of all notice they are men. They are men. Verse 3 choose seven men. The word means an adult male. An adult male. And um, that is the teaching of Scripture. There are some who try to uh, work uh, in under 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3 verse 13 uh, where it refers to wives which could also be translated women that there were women deacons. But that is going against the flow of Scripture and the witness of Scripture elsewhere. Uh, and so, particularly here, if this is the root of the office, the beginning of the office, then why did the Apostle say, choose seven men, if it wasn't to be that it's men who occupy this office? Paul confirms this in 1 Timothy 3 verse 12, which I believe controls 1 Timothy 3 verse 13. Let deacons be the husbands of one wife. Now, that does not mean for one moment that women do not have a role to play in the benevolent ministry. It is clear from Paul's letters that women played a vital role in the benevolent ministry of the early New Testament congregations. It's vital from the ministry of Jesus himself that women played a vital role in a benevolent ministry to him and to his apostles. We read of women following him. We read of women meeting his needs. And so the role of women is not downgraded here. It's not that they can't be involved. But the role of women in the church is patterned always on that of the wife in Christian marriage. With the male as the head and the female as the helper. And each serving Christ in their individual role with their unique gifts. And so the gifts of the women in the congregation are to be, um, as it were, channeled and harnessed by the deacons. And already we have women who serve in a variety of ways, most helpful ways, um, in benevolence and in visiting, uh, and in doing other things, um, alongside 
uh, the elders in this part of our congregation. But I want us to notice also that in the case of men, it's not all men or any man who can occupy this office. The apostles guide the church as to the kind of man they should choose for the office. Look at verse 3. Again, brothers, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. Full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. There's also a word that the NIV leaves out for some reason. Men of reputation. And we'll come to that in a moment. Men of reputation who are full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Full of the Holy Spirit does not mean that other believers don't have the Holy Spirit. Or that they have it in a lesser measure. It means that here are men who do not grieve the Holy Spirit. Here are men who do not quench the Holy Spirit. Here are men who are demonstrating the fruit and the graces of the Holy Spirit. That's what it means. In other words, men of mature Christian character. Notice that there's nothing here about gifts doesn't say that these men have got to have this gift or that gift, but they have got to have graces. They've got to have graces. So full of the Holy Spirit. Mature, showing mature, balanced Christian living. Men of reputation. In other words, men whose integrity is recognized both inside and outside the church. The kind of men to whom you would gladly and confidently entrust your own material affairs. Or that you would go to now already if you were in need. Men that are reliable, trustworthy. Men um, without, um, or about whom you don't have a shadow of concern. I had a wonderful illustration of this recently when I was down with my parents. Um, I had to speak to someone about some work that my parents uh, need to have done in their house. And uh, as I was speaking to this man, um, we were talking about which building contractors we might get to do the job. And um, I don't know any building contractors down there, now having been away for so long, but I'd asked my parents... And they had mentioned one or two. And then I remembered also the guys who did the work in Innisfilan Church Building. And uh, I knew that they were Christians. And I knew that they were members of Oma Evangelical Presbyterian Church. These are men who begin their day's work with prayer. I'd heard. So I said to this architect... I said, uh, my parents have mentioned these and this couple and, and uh, given uh, two or three names and he mentioned one or two other. And then I said, there's a couple of uh, men apparently from Oma. I don't know their name, but uh, they did work in a skill uh, reform Presbyterian church building. And the chap said, oh yes, I know those two men. This fellow's not a Christian. He said, we often use them. They will leave no stone unturned. See, there's men of reputation. Men of reputation. 
in terms of the work. I don't know if those men hold any office in the church, but there's men of reputation. Um, so, full of wisdom, of reputation, uh, and um, then um, we read that the apostles took these men and they laid hands on them and they prayed for them. Here are men who are being ordained to biblical office. This is not a temporary arrangement. This is a permanent office. Laying on of hands and prayer always is the mark of ordination um, when it comes to church leadership. And look then at what happened at the end. Verse 7. And here's the wonderful outcome to all of this. The word of God spread. The number of the disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And a large number of priests were obedient to the faith. The appointment of the deacons didn't just solve an internal problem. Didn't just free up the apostles. Uh, didn't just meet the care of the widows. Didn't just avert another problem, disunity of the church. It also led to the salvation of sinners and the growth of the church. You see, that's why it's important that we um, all are serving and caring. Because it is as we serve and as we care for one another that the non-Christian that comes in on a Friday night to the coffee stop or the non-Christian that comes into the church service, they sense that, they see that, they experience that. And it's that that prepares their hearts for the gospel because they don't see by and large this kind of care in the world around them. And then as we formalize it and as we um, seek to structure it into the life of our congregation and the, and the office of deacon, surely that should be our prayer as well that the word of God will spread and the number of disciples in Canic Fergus will increase rapidly. And a large number of people become obedient to the faith. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this record of how um, the caring ministry, the benevolent ministry, that Christ so wonderfully and powerfully combined in his person with his preaching and prayer that it now is going to be separated off uh, because the apostles are not uh, like Christ. They do not have the resources that he had. And so they need others to bear the burden with them. We thank you that here is a church that cared. And we thank you that that care impacted the community around about. And it paved the way for the gospel progressing for the gospel being preached by the apostles and people being saved. Help us, Lord God, to care. Help us to care for one another. Help us to care for those around us, to care for those who come in among us, and so to prepare the ground and the hearts and lives of men and women for the gospel that they will hear also from our lips and from our pulpit and from the witness of our congregation. 
We ask, Lord, that you would bless and guide us at this time as a church as we think about electing uh, deacons uh, to take responsibility for the material and benevolent life of our congregation. We know we're not large in number, but yet there is always benevolent need and there is always material affairs that have got to be cared for. And so we pray that you might raise up men who will fill this position and who will serve you in this way and who will channel and harness the gifts of the other members, male and female, so they can continue to grow in service also. Lord, we ask this so that the number of disciples might grow rapidly, the church might expand, and that your name would be glorified in this time. In Jesus' name. Amen.